Greetings, friends, and welcome back, or welcome to the High Flyers Podcast. The show, the curious ones, the ones that want to learn to fly high from individual spreading value in a variety of industries and values, to learn about their sunrise, their magic moments, their hustle, and a load of golden nuggets and insight to help you be 1% better every day. And I'm your host, Peter Tuggerock. In this episode, we take flight with Matt Dwyer. Now, I wanted to do this conversation with Matt for a long time, as his journey really inspires me, so I'm really glad he agreed to come to the show. The biggest takeaway from this conversation for me was, even with all the success Matt has had, at his core, he came across as very humble, relatable, and it was like talking to a mate at the bar. We delve into a number of aspects about his journey, right from not fitting in, growing up, and his mum's struggles, his foray into FMCG and spending more than a decade there before moving into sport, something he's always been passionate about. Hear about Matt's experiences in cricket in Australia and England, and now more recently in tennis, how those roles came about, how he succeeded in them, the journey of moving countries with a young family, and so much more. And make sure you listen in to a number of candid stories Matt shares from this journey that I'm sure will inspire you and help you be 1% better every day. Are you ready to fly high? Welcome to the show, Matt. Really, really enjoyed having you on. Um, I've been looking forward to this for some time. So, yeah, welcome. Thank you, mate. Looking forward to the chat. Yeah, it's been a couple of months since we've uh, since we've spoken and there's been a bit going on. Um, both in uh, in the community, I guess, but also at work. So uh, a good thing, good chance to cover some stuff up. Awesome. Now there might be listeners who may not be as familiar with your journey or your background. Did you want to give a quick overview of who you are and where you are today in life? Yeah. So um, work-wise, um, I've had kind of fifteen years fast-moving consumer goods, um, and then the last ten years has been in sports. So two very kind of different. Um, career paths, but with some some crossover and uh, and opportunities to kind of share different things from both industries, which we might touch on. But currently today, um, my title is the Chief Tennis Officer at Tennis Australia, which is probably the worst title in world sport. But um, <laughs> it's it doesn't in some ways you think it explains itself, but it doesn't. But essentially, any Aussie tennis player. Um, whether that's kids starting the game for the first time right up to our elite players, um, supporting them um, across the country and on their journey to to either play a sport that they can play for life and enjoy or maybe go on and be the best tennis player they can be. That's the kind of general uh, rundown of, of my role and it's on the exec of Tennis Australia. So as we sit here on the 12th of December, we're, uh, we're still getting the final bits with regard to the AO, which is obviously a massive spike in our in our kind of business. But it's a um, I think we're almost there. So there could be an announcement even uh, even Monday to officially give a uh, response to where we're at with regard to the AO for for twenty twenty one. Fantastic, great. Well, let's let's start off with you with your story, Matt, and take it back to your early days, to your sunrise, as I call it. Um, what was that like for you? I know on the phone when we spoke, you were saying you had a quite a Aussie childhood. I think you grew up in the countryside, is that right? Uh, no, no, it was actually city, but it was, a, um, I guess on the surface, it was quite a, um, a fortunate lifestyle. So 
I grew up in suburban Melbourne, was born on a farm, so you've got that bit right. Um, yep. <laughs> and then uh, was lucky enough to get a scholarship to a private school in Melbourne, um, Xavier College. So had uh, kind of a fortunate life in that context. Um, very loving family and supporting kind of family. Um, but, you know, in the, in the background we did, like most families, had some things that we had to kind of deal with and um, we had mum has had a kind of lifetime struggle with mental health um, and that's kind of been a bit of a journey for us as a family from, you know, the old days of, of hiding it, not wanting to kind of share it, to being a little bit more open and supportive kind of now and um, dad was a bit of a, a pillar and a, um, a rock for the whole family. Um, he was kind of working from home and the trials and tribulations of his own business operating out of the, the kind of garage or the, or the office at home and, so it was. It did have its um, kind of ups and downs. I guess it was. It was quite a happy one, and I guess probably in in hindsight, um, it uh, it did. There were a lot of things that kind of set me up for for future. Um, but I never yeah. really kind of found my groove as a kid. Like I was kind of in and out of different groups and and playing cricket and sport on the weekend with different clubs and all that type of stuff, and moved around a couple of times. So there was it was uh, to a degree there was a bit going on in the background, but was a very kind of privileged, lucky, um, you know, private school boy. It was somewhat sheltered uh, life. Um, mm. Off my uniform to the private school every day and surrounded by kind of like people. Um, so there was a there was kind of a bit going on back in those days. But that was the kind of the early early foundations or sunrise as you as you touched on. Mm, mm. And and how would you say people would describe a young Matt? Like, what were some of your passions and and perhaps your behaviour growing up? Did you have any influences that he looked to, or things you wanted to try growing up? Yeah, typical typical Melbourne boy. So, love my sport, um, cricket. <laughs> um, that kind of came across in in my pursuits at school. Um, probably spent a little bit too much time focused on that. Um, was never was was okay in club cricket. Um, but never really kind of excelled in it, um, but just really enjoyed the camaraderie that kind of came with team sports. And um, and I guess that was my kind of sweet spot that I enjoyed in the team environment. You, you were kind of forced to come together and be part of that group. And um, So from that perspective, I, I was quite a, I don't know if you'd say quiet kid, um, but as I said, just kind of floated around. And it wasn't really until I kind of got my first full-time job that I really started to gain understanding of myself or challenge myself, which was in sales. Um, I'd studied advertising and and dad kind of said, you know, get out and spend a couple of years with a folder under your arm and um, and do a bit of selling. And, and I never really thought of myself as a salesperson at all, like a, as I said, a kind of quiet kid. But um, I just mm. learned, learned so much, kind of been thrown in the car with a, with a folder and a new um, – a new customer base that hadn't really been serviced us with sweats at the time. And it got a chance to kind of get a few wins and get a bit of confidence. And, and I remember someone saying to me really, really early that um, sales is just about satisfying people's needs. And that, that kind of resonated. So I, I had that kind of mindset that every time I went into a shop and sold something, it was to help their business and, and genuinely help them. And, um, and that, kind of got me off to a bit of a fire and got me a little bit more um, confidence and, and enjoyment. And then and then went across to Lion Nathan um, at a time where 
Lion Nathan were making a play to be the number one brewer in Australia. And at that stage, they only had about 5% share in Victoria. So Victoria was the, um, the, the key market for them to be able to get that national leadership. And it, it, was a, it was a fascinating role, actually. It went in under the cover of darkness. We weren't, there were four of us that kind of went in and we weren't allowed to tell anybody who we were employed by because what we were right. doing was what ended up being the acquisition of 45 of the best uh, outlets, um, on-premise outlets across uh, Victoria um, in the key seating areas of South Yarra, Paran, Richmond, um, Ballarat, Bendigo, Geelong, uni kind of towns. And then one day everyone woke up and all these pubs got converted across to Two Is New and and it was the project that I'd been working on with uh, with a group in Sydney and no one knew who'd been buying all these pubs. They just knew that there was kind of someone active in the market and ended up being Two Is and it was the launch of Two Is New in Victoria and um, I kind of went from, you know, well and truly on the out to having drink cards to the best locations in Melbourne and, <laughs> um, and, and had a bit of fun with that as well. So... And it was the time they took over the Tours New Melbourne Cup and um, and I just loved it and, and had a lot of fun. And, and I think that ultimately gave me um, the confidence to be able to go on and do things from there. Mm, incredible. And if you just touched on your study for a second, you, you mentioned you studied business advertising at RMIT. Was that, was that a driver from dad or did that again, you were sort of like, I want to explore business and that was the best way to do it? No, I, um, I mean, I... I didn't do overly well at school, kind of very average, um, and I knew business was kind of just something that I could get into, and and you know the advertising course was kind of there. So it, it was by no mean a passion or a deliberate. I just kind of fell into it, if I'm if I'm being really honest. Um, mm. They had a bit of a passion for marketing, and um, it kind of learned a bit through some products and stuff that he'd kind of uh, done, um, but. It, it it ended up just kind of almost feeling like the right thing to do as opposed to a real kind of passion. And and interestingly, you know, the old advertising agency and the type of person that, that would traditionally attract probably wasn't me either. So it ended up being um, – it gave me great grounding in marketing and some of the principles and whatever. But I, I never – I was never sure which way I'd go. And I actually did a year of human movement at Deakin um, – and got to two thirds of the way through the year, and didn't think I'd ever have a career in sport. So I, um, I actually backed out. Oh wow! <laughs> and uh, and then, like I said, got out on the road and got a sales job, and and kind of kicked on from there. So the, the study side of things, I've never been overly studious. I'd probably more describe myself as being curious, um, and that's what's kind of driven. Uh, driven me more so than sitting down and studying per se, but so I still enjoy learning and the curiosity of that. But um, sitting down and doing, um, you know, a massive piece of study or, or trying to concentrate for any longer than kind of forty-five minutes has always been a, yeah. a bit of a problem for yeah. me. So um, yeah, it didn't mean that I didn't enjoy learning, but not not in that environment. Mm. Probably the way to describe it. Mm. No, I love that. That sounds very similar to me. I think oh, I was very, I actually studied RMIT as well and it sort of fell fell in as they do. And I think for listeners, a lot of people ask me where they go, how do I build my career or how do I find a passion out of year 12? And I think your answer there summarizes it really well where you don't have to know it early on. You sort of can figure it out as you go. Yeah, definitely. It, um, and yeah, my, as I said, my career has kind of pivoted a few different times. Um, and what, what I guess I've kind of learned, and I was lucky, is, is probably during my time at Nestle where there was a, a shift in um, 
in the old PDR process, the you know the, the end of year review of your performance, where it went from the traditional um, let's focus on the five areas you need to improve, and by the way, you're doing one thing kind of okay, but let's get the five things right. To very much a focus on what are your strengths um, and what are the areas that you can add the most value to the business, maximising those strengths, and and I think that is an interesting reflection for me that I kind of learned through that. It was what what get a real deep understanding of who you are, what makes you tick, what are your strengths, and then look for roles and opportunities that maximise that um, as opposed to the other. And I, I guess that's probably helped guide a lot of the decisions that I've kind of made from there. I mean, obviously being passionate about the product um, is an upside and, and there's some downside to that as well, which we might touch on a little bit later. But um, it's kind of been through in a, having a, a greater understanding of myself, what drives me, and then how does that actually um, manifest itself in a day job? Mm. Now, if you, if you zoom out for a second, Matt, you, like you said at the start, you spent 15 years in FMCG across, I think, five different multinationals, and then you've been in sport now the last decade. If you look back to your days at Schweppes or Lion, was that always an aspiration that you were like, oh, I want to go into the sports world one day? Or it's sort of like, how, how did that journey sort of, I guess, transition from those five companies you were at and then going to CA? Yeah, um, um, I mean, I'd loved, as I said, I loved my current community sport and sport in general. Um, and then I was just, I was really lucky. I got um, I got a phone call from a recruiter saying um, that Cricket Australia at that stage had some quite disturbing stats around the relevance of cricket with five to 15-year-old kids. They'd slipped down to the seventh favourite sport with that with that kind of group. And the, the leadership team there acknowledged that they they needed to be more proactive in selling the sport, in inverted commas. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, I think if, if my boss had been quite candid, I'm not sure he really knew what that meant, but he knew the skill sets an FMCG person had could help in what he was what he was trying to do. And, and that was things like, you know, having an understanding of your consumer and your shopper. So, you know, the distinction between a, appealing to a child to a, five to 12 to attract them to cricket and get them involved in cricket, but equally the vital role that, you know, the traditional mother kind of plays in the sport choice for a child and, and how do you articulate uh, why a child would want to play cricket or why their mother would want to support that. So there was a bit of how do we kind of uh, really articulate cricket's USP. A lot of people who kind of worked in sport were in their passion and, and the, um, the interesting bit was that uh, the thought was all, all you had to do was put a footy in their hands or put a cricket in their hands and they'd have the same love affair with the sport that I've had. Um, and that's our ultimate goal is just to get the ball into their hands. But what what it really is, is being able to clearly articulate to someone that um, hasn't been fortunate enough to have your experience in sport as to why they would consider it and then how do you keep them in there. And uh, so that role that I had at Cricket Australia um, was basically to link junior cricket with the Big Bash. It was when the Big Bash was launched and mm. and the whole sport was aimed at an engaging five to, to 12-year-old kids and their mothers. Um, and then there was a bit about just how does an organisation like um, Nestle or Mars deploy a national field force, you know, how they kind of, um, you know, be a little bit more accountable to what the outcomes were and that type of stuff. Um, I think the other thing they wanted 
was a bit of the pace that kind of comes with FMCG. So that that kind of um, urgency around um, having impact, doing things at scale, the growth mindset type stuff um, was also a big part of what I think he was kind of looking for. And, and it helped that I'd kind of been a 10 or 15 year at that stage, community cricket and footy person and, and kind of understood grassroots sports. So I was, I was really lucky that someone had the foresight to um, see that those skills could be transferable. And then that set off a chain of events that I still scratch myself myself now, mm. um, to mm. bring Australia to the ECB, heading over to to the UK and um, skipping into Lords every day. Um, <laughs> I arrived there the week of the 2015 Ashes, Australia playing at uh, at Lords, um, and had three three amazing years there, and then and then fortunate enough, you know, kind of two and a half years ago to come to come back to Melbourne in a, an executive role in tennis and and be able to enjoy um, everything that tennis has to offer. So it was a, a definite kind of pivot moment in um, in my career personally, and um, mm. I was really lucky. Yeah, and I'm, I'm looking forward to touching on some of that experiences shortly. But I think one of the things that fascinates me about that transition from FMCG to sport is if we peel it back a bit, like you said, you're 15 years into your career and you're probably a bit mature in your thinking as well. Like, did you did you, did you you do analysis where you go, here the risks I'm taking, perhaps you had a family at that time and you're going, I've got a good career. I think you were national business manager with, for the listeners is quite a, uh, a role of quite a big responsibility. Yeah. Um, so when this opportunity came up at CA, did you sort of do the pros and cons where you went, okay, this is a risk of being in one industry 15 years. I'm sort of pivoting across. Was that a thought or you sort of, it was a sliding doors moment where you said, this is a passion and I want to take it. No, mate, it was completely the opposite. <laughs> it was, okay. um, it was, wow, this is a, a once in a lifetime opportunity and, and I'll do yeah. whatever I can to, uh, to make sure that I'm the lucky one. And, and I probably could have, if I'd been honest, I probably could have mentioned 100 people that I'd met in FNCG that might have been better at that job at Cricket Australia. Um, but it was it was a chance just to, to have a go at it. I mean, there, there were, I mean, we, we moved back from, we were in Sydney at the time and we loved living in Sydney and we had a great lifestyle up there and, um, you know, the FNCG career was going, was going really well. But I don't, I honestly don't think I knew what I was getting myself into, to be honest. I was so caught up in the the, the glitz of being able to wander into, into the Cricket Australia head office and being part of the um, of a sport that I'm passionate about that um, I don't think I really thought through it. And and there there's been a hell of a lot of upsides I've touched on, but equally it's a it's a very different industry. Um, it's federated in its governance, which means that ultimately the states um, own Cricket Australia, and that's a fascinating dynamic in itself um, as to how that relationship kind of works. And um, and there's, there's equally a downside in being so passionate about your product um, because you, you wear the knocks a lot longer and they go a lot deeper. So when things aren't quite going the way that you want them to go because you are so passionate about about the sport, um, it, it tends to build scar tissue, and when things aren't going the right way, you get you get a lot more frustrated. Um, I found it a lot more difficult kind of to kind of switch off. Um, so kind of sleep sleep issues kicked in around that time. Um, so it's not it's not kind of all 
all upside working in something you're passionate about. And I think most people would say that have worked with me, regardless of whether it was herbs and spices in the Mars days or um, <laughs> beer at, at Lion Nathan, which was easy to get passionate about. Um, I've always <laughs> loved my product, like I always kind of enjoy it. But this was to a whole new level and almost mm. almost a tipping point at um, at times. So I think it's probably the opposite. I probably underestimated the change more so than having a really clear this is the path I want to go down and I'm going to find a way to get into sport. It, um, it kind of, as I said, the foresight of, of someone else was probably the driver. Mm. And you, and you mentioned earlier about the transition, the transferable skills between FMCG and sport. If we wind it back and look at your first year in CA at the end of the year, did you sort of sit back and reflect and you went, okay, this, this transition wasn't as hard as I thought because the passion sort of led you through it. Um, no, it was, it was somewhat balanced. I mean, I knew, I, I thought that they that they would appreciate that I was kind of just another kind of cricket, community cricket guy that's passionate about the sport. And and I played uh, played that to my advantage, particularly when I went to the UK, actually. Um, but the, what I was kind of sold on internally was, a, you know, a chocolate salesman that can sell to kids now coming in and bringing a culture of sales to cricket. And... And that made a lot of people uncomfortable. Um, and so I, I think I probably stood on a few landmines early on um, that that never really became a massive issue, but they were learnings as I kind of went through. Um, so I think at the end of the first 12 months, I was probably more frustrated that things hadn't progressed at the rate which I would like them to or the rhythm that a, a Mars or a Nestle would kind of go at. And I think that was probably my major reflection in the first in the first 12 months was that I'd like to have had more, more of an impact and, and move the game forward uh, a lot quicker rate than what, than what we had. Um, so that was probably the main, the main kind of reflection for me early on was I, I really had to ch- kind of change my style um, in order to, to connect and lead and, um, and a very different culture in sport. So, yeah, there, there were kind of some interesting things uh, in those first 12 to 18 months as far as looking mm. go. Yeah. Um, something I love asking guests is, is magic moments. And, and I ask this because I think in my own journey to date, whether it's work or life, there's always been those moments that in the moment might be really hard or there were painful learnings or projects you worked on or, or to your story, moving countries. Have, have you had some of those where they kind of stick out for you looking back on your kind of journey to date? Do you go, there were really important learnings, but in the moment, they were probably the hardest thing ever? Um. Yeah, the, I imagine the transition from Australia to the UK would be one of those magical moments, which were learnings. Yeah, so that that was that was another one where you had to kind of shift your style. I, I think the magic moments for me um, are more the type of people that I've been fortunate enough to kind of work with through that journey. So, if I kind of think about um, Mars. And my role there, you know, they were one of my customers. Um, I got a tap on the shoulder from their new um, MD, and and he uh, he'd kind of spent the previous six months talking me through the frailties of the business when they were one of our customers, and then said, "Do you want to come across?" And I come up, mate. You spent the last six months telling me how how hard this business is, and <laughs> now you want you want to drag me under there with you. And um, but he. What what I learned through that was 
the the satisfaction I got kind of coming out the back end of that. You know, that, that was a really hard first six to twelve months for us as a business. A lot of change at Mars, a lot of different um, principles that that had a previous MD that had been there for like seventeen years or twenty years or something. Um, so a lot of kind of cultural change. Um, but you know, he he convinced me that um, being part of something. Uh, that at the end you'll be you'll have greater satisfaction and there's more upside was was quite a, a different mindset for me. Up until then, I'd been looking for big multinational brands that I could continue to learn from and things that were going well, so as I could just kind of get in amongst the cogs and and continue to learn and develop and and not kind of expose myself too much. This was this was the other end of the spectrum. This was a business that had been knocked around a little bit. The other kind of, uh, you'd probably say the, the poor brother of the three Mars businesses with their food business. It was their food business up against their pet and their chocolate businesses, which were which were quite big. Um, and they had a lot of upside and a lot of work to kind of do. Not great relationships with retailers. Um, so there was a lot of things that needed to kind of be addressed. But I've got to say at the end of that three and a half years or whatever I had with them, it was probably some of the most satisfying. Um, and we were selling, you know, herbs and spices and tomato sauce. So it, it had nothing to do with the kind of product. It was more the opportunity to have an impact and be part of something. So mm. I think that was a bit of a, a kind of magic moment for me in, you know, what are the types of roles, not just uh, the product. I always kind of been looking at the product, but more where was the business at? What, where could I add value? Um, when was the time to learn? When was the time to actually contribute? Those types of things. So, so that's one thing that kind of comes to mind. The other one that um, really comes to mind was at the ECB. So, my first month, in fact, the day the day it got announced publicly that um, I was I was taking on the role that I was having was the same day that Andrew Strauss started uh, with. Um, with the ECB and his role as performance lead. And yep. kind of cricket fans out there, you may remember it was when he made the call that Kevin Peterson would never play for England again. Um, and mm-hmm. he was the number one player and number one you know, run scorer in English cricket. And it was a massive call on the surface. Um, but when you, you spoke to Straussy and, and got an understanding of his values and what he wanted to see in his vision and the culture of the England team and where you want to take them, um, you, you could just see that this was the right thing to do. Yet he got, you know, as an ex-England captain and quite respected Ashes winner and whatever, he got quite, he got chastised quite significantly in the media. And and I kind of arrived a couple of weeks later, and um, and then he came up with the idea that his plan was to support white ball cricket over over red ball cricket. There was going to be a home. Um, the Home World Cup in the UK in 2019, which was the same year as the Ashes, and for someone to come out and suggest that the white ball cricket would take precedent over red ball was was as close to um, cracking the foundations of of English cricket as you could get to. So he, but the the courage and leadership he showed through that whole period um, was. Uh, and his commitment to the vision and despite during the time his wife um, being uh, sick with um, with cancer and, and passing away um, probably 12 to 18 months ago, to see that England team go on and win a, hot, a home World Cup 
um, and be very successful on the field on the back of his vision and, and uh, dominate white ball cricket for that uh, following four-year period um, was was something I was very fortunate to see at close close range and, and just see someone with that leadership courage to be able to um, really stick to their plan and their vision and um, and do it in an engaging way, a charismatic way, uh, an inspiring way. Um, you know, I was, I was really lucky to have, have someone like him to kind of work next to. Mm. Yeah, no, super fascinating. Thanks for sharing that. I think I've got, I've got many questions about your move from the Australia to the UK, but I think one of the questions that perhaps listeners might be wondering that I think a lot of listeners are ambitious and, and obviously you, you, you've obviously done a lot in your career. When you were at CA and you spent, I think, what, close to five years at CA, was that one of your goals to work overseas in a, in a sporting organisation outside of Australia? Like how did that move come about and was it personal ambition tied to that? Um, maybe. I, I'd probably say I had a global curiosity. Um, I'd never done the backpacking thing. My wife had never kind of done it. We never really travelled overseas other than the occasional Metcash junket for those in FMC. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so it, it never was kind of on our radar as a, as a priority. It was more a, um, you know, curiosity through travel. And, and it was only that I um, uh, got a call from a recruiter that said, you know, the ECB is looking for uh, this type of role and you've been, you've been recommended. Um, are you interested? And, uh, and, and, you know, for me, it was a little bit like the first phone call to go to Cricket Australia. I thought, it's not, life's not going to get any better than this. And then to get the call to, to go to Lords and, and have, a, have another go at it was, was brilliant um, and, you know, it was really kind of fortunate. So it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't a deliberate um, ambition, but I guess I kind of just gone on with doing the job and, and the opportunities kind of came and... Um, and when, when they did, we, we kind of took it with both hands. A- actually, interestingly, um, when I first got that recall from the recruiter, I went home to my wife and I said, oh, I got a call from a recruiter today. And she goes, oh, okay, that's interesting. I said, yeah, it's a, it's a big big role. It's on the executive. It's, um, it's exciting. I said, it's actually with the ECB. And she said, now I won't throw in the exact words that she used, but my wife doesn't like it. <laughs> but she said, there's there's no way we're moving to London and quite Melbourne, but colder. Um and, and I kind of went like a uh, you know a boy who felt as though his, his dream was slipping between his fingers. And I I kept chatting away to the recruiter and had um, another couple of conversations without her knowing. Um, <laughs> and then and then they rang up and they said, right, we want to now kind of introduce you to the ECB. And and I went home that night and said, oh, oh that recruiter rang back. They, they want me to have a phone call with the ECB. She said, oh, well, you know. Good luck. You won't get the job anyway. So yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> um, and then the next the next week, it was they want to fly us to England, and um, and we got on the plane, and we're still kind of going. We just don't know how this is going to work out. She's she's an executive girl herself. She's um, uh, was with Deloitte um, as uh, as a director with them, specialising in inclusive leadership um, or diversity inclusive leadership, and. And we just couldn't see the world's kind of working out. We had a four-and-a-half-year-old son that had to start school. And, and we thought, oh, we'll go over to the ECB. It'll give me a chance to see Lords. And, um, but we're not quite sure how this is going to happen. And, and within three days, they'd um, kind of found us a school. They'd, we'd worked out an, an option for her with work, and, and they offered me the role. So it, it kind of crept up on, on all of us. Um, 
but it was it was the best thing we could do personally. It was the best thing we could have done professionally. And my advice to anyone that ever gets the opportunity, notwithstanding what COVID's kind of done over the last six to twelve yeah. months and the impact on um, on people moving around the world, is take it and go for it. You know, to to challenge ourselves, going to a new environment, being an Aussie in English cricket. Um, it was as challenging a day job as I think I've had. Um, and outside of that, trying to help a family settle into a new country and, and kind of experience that given we were quite um, shallow in our understanding of, of the world and, and different things around us was was a real battle as well. Um, but professionally, personally, um, pushing yourself outside that comfort zone um, has been has been remarkable both uh, mm. and career-wise and, and everything that kind of came with it. So if you do, if anyone yeah. does get the opportunity, I would, I would absolutely be saying take it. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, and I think one of the things that, that again, intrigues me, is, and you said it at the start of the show, is companies like CA and ECB have got some very smart people and, and you were one of them. What, what do you think separated you from the rest of the pack that the ECB reached out and said, we want to bring you? Was there anything you did in terms of projects or deliverables or attitude that you think you can share with the listeners? Yeah, um, I mean, I think there was a there was a particular project. that English sport across general had focused on retaining 15 to 19-year-old kids. So they had really focused on that retention of kids in sport, whereas Australian sport... Ironically, given it was naturally part of our DNA, was to you know, pick up a bat or, or swing a racket or, or kick a footy. Um, Australian sport had focused on that entry level and at the base and getting as many kids in as possible. So it was a uh, they were looking for someone that had proven experience in growing a sport right from the bottom up, and then letting all their learnings around retention kind of continue. So very much a um, not just a market share grab, but, you know, growing, getting kids more active in the UK was obviously a big thing as well. You've got plenty of excuses over there as to why you might not be active with the weather and, um, you know, computers kind of coming in and, and gaming and all that sort of stuff at the time. So so they were looking very practically for that. I think what they were nervous about was this whole Aussie um, persona and what type of Aussie was I? Um and I guess from a career perspective, there's probably two two types of Aussies. There's the the Shane Warne kind of knockabout, um, you know, lovable rogue type thing, or there's the I know the Dave Warner, the ultimate competitive beast um, that might. And, and both of them seem to have a bit of arrogance and and cockiness, and I, and I think maybe a bit of humility kind of in that was you know I, I played up. That dad was a thirty-year club cricketer and um, and batted batted ten and didn't bowl, but just loved the game and and the cricket was <laughs> my DNA and um, and that this was a dream for me to come to the UK and um, and it was they were all they were all fact they were all real, but I never I never went in there saying, you know, Aussie cricket's got all the answers and and the ECB could do a lot or English cricket could do a lot to learn from that. It was it was a little bit more organic. Um, and at the same time, I could just see so much opportunity. So there were a lot of biting my tongue kind of moments, um, just simply because the upside I could see in in change in English cricket was was quite significant. Um, so I think you know had had a lot of kind of conversations. Had a I took over the role from Mike Gatting, so ex England cricket captain, um, 
you know, really highly respected in English cricket. Um, and he was really supportive from day one. And, and I guess I kind of just played the wide-eyed kid lucky enough to come to the ECB and get this opportunity and kind of drive change through that lens. Um, and as opposed to kind of being more the Pied Piper out the front coming come with me, it was more, right, we're all in this together and, and how cool would it be to be part of this journey? Um, so it was, a, and I think part of the, the learnings from Cricket Australia um, kind of came to the fore there um, with, uh. with the humility of the kind of came. So, so I think my style did flex um, what they were looking for. I mean, I think someone that could just come in and say, trust me, I've been on this journey before and it is possible. Um, that was probably what they were ultimately ultimately looking for. Um, and then the traditional kind of change management stuff, a couple of early wins worked well. And then we just got momentum from there, which was, which was great. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that, Matt, because I think that's worth underlining where, and I think listeners often wonder that we, skill sets obviously one part of the puzzle, but like you said, personality and cultural fit are equally as important. And it sounds like those three kind of married up for you for this role. Yeah, yeah, it was, um, it, it was, there were, yeah, there, there were a number of different dynamics at play. Um, 39 counties uh, in the in the UK and the, and the kind of federated model is is something I, I laugh about um, in, in an analogy that, that the relationship between the counties and, and the governing body or the states and the governing body is a little bit like a, a dad or a stepdad. It's when everything's going well and you're giving little Johnny money and everything's going fine, yep, he's my dad and, and I love him and, and this is a fantastic family dynamic until you have to say, no to something or try and try and you know shake things up a little bit and then it well you're not my real dad anyway um i'll kind of get on with it my own way and so you're forever kind of walking that line of federated governance and you know there's a lot of upsides to that at least to better decision making you you need to be able to influence people as opposed to just being able to say well i'm the boss so you're gonna to have to deal with it um so there's a lot more collaboration um, you need to find ways to influence people. You need to change and flex your own style. Um, you need to appeal to different personalities, both at scale but also individually. Um, there's a lot of lot of learnings in that kind of federated model, um, but it's uh, it takes a whole whole heap of elements to to kind of drive significant change in that in that sports area. Mm. Yeah, um, and if we touch on your transitions, obviously the, the Australia to the UK, but then back to Australia where you went into a different sport and, and to sort of expand out, I think one of the things that fascinates me is obviously you said it was taxing on a family to an extent because you're moving countries and the kids in school, but then also from your own personal point of view, you're probably learning a lot to different culture and a different environment. So how did you go about that? Did you have people guiding you or did you have mentors you looked up to or did you just try things and if it worked out great, if not, you learned from it? Like, what was that period the last couple of years making these transitions like from a learning point? Yeah, um, tennis, tennis, this role was a lot a lot more difficult. It, it was less in my comfort zone. Like, at least when I went into cricket, I, I felt comfortable that I could talk about the sport and and had some street credibility, not for anything I necessarily did on the, on the field, but more culturally that I love, you know, there's a kindred spirit in the love of the game. Um, my connection to tennis, uh, I was a ball boy at the Australian Open and 
and if I'm being honest, they were probably some of my most uh, fondest childhood memories were being a ball kid. Mm. But I never really kind of played the sport per se. I just enjoyed that two weeks of every year as a as a ball kid whilst I was still playing cricket and doing whatever. So I had a love of of the sport just through that fondness of a childhood memory. But I couldn't say, you know, I'm a 20-year club tennis player. Um, so... And equally, I had an admiration for what Tennis Australia had done. And, you know, Craig Tiley as an amazing visionary um, and someone who would go beyond the traditional boundaries of a governing body. I mean, for, for TA to have seven offices around the world, to, to have the number one Grand Slam, to have one of the best sporting events um, on the planet, as well as being a kind of mature sport and all that type of stuff, um, that was a that was a big appeal, and and I think he he his his vision and his way of going about things was very different to an FMCG. So I think early doors we kind of had a different view on how to do different things, but we we found middle ground, and and the COVID crisis has been a really interesting kind of time as well. Um, he he often says it's a privilege to lead through crisis and that resonated with me um you know i enjoy people um where is it sunshine yellow on the personality style mm. which means i just love making connections with people and and in the toughest of times that's where i kind of really enjoy supporting people and leading people and um, and he and i are very similar in our mindsets in that and i think um that's kind of worked really well for us as the dynamic over the last six six to eight months um and it's probably brought out the best best in best in each of us so mm. um, that that's probably one of the the kind of leadership um you call you call mentors with your direct line manager um but i've, I've been lucky enough to have some great people all the way along you know, organizations fmcg organizations um, you know, invest a lot in their people and, and have great leaders and um, you just learn so much every day you go to the office. It's like being at kind of at uni in a finishing school kind of way with with what you learn from people around you and, and that's been a, a really lucky part of, of my kind of career. I've been able to draw on all those learnings for, for many, many kind of roles since then. Hmm. And, and the other thing I think is, and, and I love talking about this on the podcast, is obviously there's work, but then there's also the side outside of work. And you've made the move from Australia to the UK and then back to Australia. What was that like from a from a family point of view, personal point of view, in terms of making those transitions? Did you, did, looking back, were there any learnings there that you can give someone looking to make a similar transition? Yeah, we, um, when we went to the UK, we had a four and a half year old and an 18 month old. Um, so that was a dynamic. He, he started school only a couple of weeks after we got there, um, which was beneficial for us. We got a chance to make a bit of a network straight away um, outside of just the kind of day job of cricket people that I'd kind of meet. So, so that was good. Um, the, 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 the kind of lesson, I guess, is expect there's going to be really hard. Um, and I remember one of the Mars guys who got moved overseas, they did kind of a two-day training thing with him and his wife, and one of the key messages was be prepared to be as exhausted as you've ever been because you, you kind of wake up in the morning and you go, right, where am I? 
cool. Right, I need to get to work. How do I get there again? Um, <laughs> you go to the supermarket and go, right, I'm going to buy deodorant. None of these brands are familiar. What email aisle do I go to? Um, you're continually lost. You're continually – you never go into kind of automatic pilot. And and I think we underestimated that when we when we were in the UK and, and you know, things got a bit shaky there in that first six-month period. Um, so I think that was uh, kind of the learning – there um but you know we we loved it we had you know we had little kids with british accents um <laughs> which interesting the day that i got announced it was just about to be announced for the role at tennis australia my son came home from school and he said daddy i think fencing might be my go and we said that's it, that's it. <laughs> that, uh, your cousins will be <laughs> um but i mean for them to kind of experience time overseas and and learn that global curiosity i think you know, for, for their lives and their future, um, that's what's going to really differentiate um, talent in the future. It's the emotional intelligence, it's the curiosity, it's the connectedness, because as technology kind of ramps up, um, some of the other skills will kind of be picked up, as we know. Um, but if, if you can create the child that's got, that can create relationships and connections and um, has got a degree of curiosity and self-awareness um, and understanding of self, what drives them, what, um, you know, where they want to go, those types of things, I think that will differentiate this generation. Um, and you know, overseas stuff is, is a great way to, to kind of do that. And, and we hope in time that we'll be able to do a lot more of that, whether it's within work or, or external to work. So I think it's mm. proverbial world's getting smaller. Um, you know that those opportunities we want to try and save it because we never got the chance to do it as um as young people ourselves, my wife and I. Yep, yep, no, absolutely. And and if we talk about the other side of your journey, and you touched on it earlier around people, um, particularly I think your your perspective is quite unique because you worked in different industries, but then also different countries and different roles. What have been some of the learnings there you've had where? whether it was your own career as you were moving up or now being a leader yourself where you've got people reporting into you, have you had anything that stands out to you that go, these are kind of the three or four building blocks that keeps you keeps you in a good path and, and has allowed you to have success or even advice you give to younger people coming up the ranks now? Um, yeah, there's probably, probably a few things. I, I think I'm more naturally uh, biased to achievement through others um as opposed to necessarily feeling as i need to do it myself so and how i kind of articulate that i think there are some people that love to be able to wake up in the morning and say right i'm the master of my own destiny today what i achieve today will be what gives me satisfaction and um and if i can be locked in a room and just continuing to churn out widgets and contribute to the business that ultimately um see me thrive I'm a little bit more the other. I, I love seeing other people grow and um, get the best of themselves and celebrating things as a team and um, kind of going on the proverbial journey and, and those types of things. So I think um, my people management stuff is, or leadership or just working in teams, is, is probably the bit that I really, really enjoy. But I, I became clearer on what it was that drove me and why that was kind of important. Um, and I, I think back to 
uh, there's probably a number of different kind of learnings, but one was we had the the England team psych take us on exec um, professional development kind of thing where they, they got a really strong understanding of each of us as individuals and then put us into environments that really challenged that. And one of them was that we went um, into a, a role play thing in central England in a little county town up there, a little village where we were thrown into the deep end of a terrorist attack and basically immersed ourselves in it for kind of 48 hours, um, you know, literally driving around the streets with earpieces in, um, you know, big learning curve at the start as far as what are the terminology and how does how to undercover um police kind of operate in the environment and chasing down um, potential terror threats and all that type of stuff. And what they knew about me through my psych testing was um, my learning agility uh, wasn't high. So I had to really work and concentrate to, to soak in information quickly. But what, what worked for me was my connectedness with people. So in times of stress where I kind of, um, Excel was the ability to be able to make connections and support people through it. And what they did to really push my buttons on that particular um, exercise was to do a whole big download of information at the start. So my head was spinning right from the first hour. We kind of got there. We didn't know what we we're getting into. Um, and they gave us a whole bit of information. So automatically I'm spinning. And then what they did was that they found as many ways as possible to disconnect me from the group. And and not, you know, so they'd set me off in assignments by myself. They would have other people kind of leading the groups and me in more uh, um, a passive role or in a corner. And and I got to about the 24-hour mark and it just so happened to coincide with my son's birthday that day. And and I finally contributed. I won't go into kind of boring bits, but basically found a wedge for me to be able to bring myself into the group and add value. And then they just mm. popped me down. And so it was enough for me. It was a breaking point. And, and I said, that's it. I'm going home. It's my son's birthday. I'm not going to chase cops and robbers around, you know, rural Queensland, rural England anymore. I'm off. And the psych said to me, okay, that's cool. Um, it's just a pity that you don't take the opportunity to learn in this situation. And I said, what are you talking about? You know, I'm going. It's my son's birthday. I've got to go. And, and then he kind of sat down and, and said, just have a think about what, what you've kind of done over the last 24 hours and what are the pressure buttons and what hasn't. And what I learned was that where I'm at my best is where I am part of the group and where I'm not is when I'm expected to do quick learning agile. So know what your strengths are in a team and kind of work on that. So don't feel as though that I need to be the person at the front taking in all the information, doing whatever. My better role is to support people around me in crisis. So it was a really interesting um, personal development. I guess it kind of summed up what I've kind of learned is learn about yourself, what makes you tick, what are your strengths, what are your, what are your weaknesses, and then really focus on those strengths and be aware of what they are because um, that's ultimately will see you succeed and, and kind of move on and, and you know, get the satisfaction you kind of want. So this uh, is a long-winded answer to your question, but um, my reflections over that journey is understanding yourself is just as important as anything else that you'll kind of do. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm sure you've had many experiences given your transitions you made, whether it's industry or country, right? So, yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. That's, uh, mm. there, are, there are dozens of them that kind of flash to mind. 
Mm. And now if you just touch on your hustle, uh, your work, and you mentioned at the start, you're the CT, CTO, Chief Tennis Officer at AO. Can you just share that with some of the listeners? How, how's the thing you've been this year and, and what are some of your kind of priorities going into 2021? Yeah, um, I mean, uh, a lot of our um, clubs and coaches really struggled through COVID. So particularly in Victoria, um, you know, some of those businesses from a coaching perspective um, were quite crippled for not being able to have kids on the court and and clubs I think there's a stat uh, right in the middle of COVID that 75% of clubs were concerned that they wouldn't be able to survive coming out the other end across all sports so so our focus has gone on to on to really supporting coaches and clubs and um, and helping them create a plan to come out the other side we're a little bit more advanced in the club side of things. So, you know, we've developed a framework to be able to have conversations with clubs about their their planning and, and what their unique uh, plan is for tennis within their area and how they can deliver on their vision for the club. Um, the coaching strategy uh, consultation has just started and and we're hoping that we'll have, um, you know, a whole heap of, heap of support for coaches early in the new year to help them and their businesses. Um, we've got a few kind of tactical things that are happening now. Um, but that, that's our kind of core focus. At the moment, we've done a competitive play review. So we're looking at competition tennis and tournament tennis and done a whole consultation on that. Um, and I think we'll have some some great conversations with tennis across the country as to what, what should be incorporated into junior competitive play um in the future and it's kind of happened organically so so that's a, a big focus for us uh within my department um across the broader tennis australia obviously it's getting through the australian open um making that event happen and it, it contributes 95 percent of our revenue for the sport so it has quite an impact if it compromised um so we're we're just going to get through that final day and take a big collective breath um, and then see see where we're at. Um, we had to make some structural changes uh, back in July um, because we just knew there was going to be some financial impact and we had to prepare for that. Um, but we're hopeful that we'll kind of come out the other end and, and be able to get the business back up and going again um, and continue, mm. continue with the great event that's the AO and, and the sport. Yep, absolutely. I can't. I can definitely can't wait for the AO next year. I think February looks like the time frame of this date. So exciting times. Um, and can I ask? Just you, you mentioned. I think you touched on it earlier. The player bodies. How, how have you player teams rather? How have you found that working in tennis and cricket? And I think particularly in tennis. Me being a massive tennis fan myself, I think there's a lot of interesting personalities to say the least. How, how do you find that compared to cricket, where you've got a cricket team and there's a lot of support around them? Whereas tennis, obviously, the players on their own and they're in the spotlight. Has that been an interesting? interesting reflection for you yeah i think um yeah it's been fascinating actually in a, in a whole raft of different ways but what 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 i've kind of seen is that that team environment and and i had my son's cricket this morning and you know he he turns up there he's got a 10 smiling faces he's got a coach and a team manager and seven other parents that all genuinely want him to do well and and, you know, if he goes out of line, his mates will kind of bring him back in the line. If he wins, his mates will celebrate with him. And um, there, are, there are elements of team sport that, that form our children and, um, and help, you know, support them through life and, and kind of upsides in that. Equally, what I've kind of learned through tennis is it is the toughest sport 
uh, you know, from the age of nine, you're out there by yourself. Um, it's you and mum getting in the car, driving across the country to go to these tournaments. Uh, you get to kind of 11 or 12 if you're doing okay. You know, your, your little sibling is kind of dragged in the car as well as you're kind of travelling around. And then a bit of public expectation, kind of 15, 16. Mum and dad get a bit excited because this could be the life change and they're going to become millionaires and travel the world. Um, you then get to 18 and you are travelling the world, but you're doing it, you know, in and out of tournaments. And that, that sport, any child that makes their way through that uh, experience between the age of 15 and 20 builds some of the most resilience, um, drive. Um, I, I can't even begin to describe how impressed I am with some of the young athletes I've had the fortunate to spend time with over the last two and a half years. And, um, you know, the the journey that they've kind of been on to get to where they are. I mean, the, the stats are pretty daunting. In any birth year, only three kids in the world will end up making the top 100. So wow. if you think about a global sport that's played in whatever it is, 99% of countries, this year only three kids will ever make it to the top 100 that are born in this in 2020. Now, that's a that's – a, you know, if, if you're planning on winning the lottery, that's uh, those odds aren't, aren't overly high. Um, so, but that it's just a it's a it's a fascinating dynamic that these kids kind of live through, um, and the expectation and and what I've seen is just some really really good people in their in their own way. I mean, we've been unfortunate a little bit that the the Aussie brat tennis player has kind of been the the stereotype over the last um, 10 or 15 years. But, you know, Ash, uh, Dylan, even Nick, I think Nick's last six, um, six to 12 months has shown the the real the real Nick and the people in Canberra used to always talk about when they'd see him with kids and, and where he kind of gets his energy and his passion and, um, and you know, under the, the pressure and the spotlight of expectation, um, I'm not sure there are too many people that that would thrive in that in that kind of environment, um, and I, I've just got full respect for any tennis player chasing their dream. Um, so it is it is a different dynamic, and for for kind of leading those, our wellbeing program at Tennis Australia is a really important part of it to be able to provide the comfort and the support around those kids as they kind of make their way through that journey. And, um, Anything we can kind of do to help is uh, will never be enough, but is well deserved in my mind. Mm, no, fascinating insight. Um, now, let's, we like finishing off the show with a final sprint, which is just a bunch of rapid fire questions, Matt. Um, is, is there one investment you've made that you consider the best in your life? Uh, I'm not great with money. Um, oh, it doesn't have to be financial, <laughs> by the way. It could be your kids, it could be career, it could be anything. Uh, investment. It could be a course you've been on, whatever. I think it's going to it might sound a bit corny, but I, I think just investing myself in everything. Like I, I kind of naturally just go right. Let's just have a crack at this. I'm not normally a, um, you know, I, I'm not a, I'm not a, a fear of failure kind of person. Um, which you know, someone like an Andrew Strauss was. You know, he he would say his drive was more a fear of failure as opposed to aspirational. I'm a little bit more um, 
let, let's get on with this and have a go and see the upside and whatever we do. So I guess investing myself into everything that I do is probably the the answer to that question, regardless of, of what I'm doing. But not not in a competitive way, just more in a oh yeah, let's have a crack at it and see where where we kind of get to. So I guess not not investing in myself, but investing myself in stuff would probably be a way of, of answering that question. Yeah, no, that's great, particularly for today with all the distractions you have. I think investing yourself in something is critical. So yeah, love it. Um, is there one thing you'd like to learn in the next six months? Not not something overtly. Like um, as I said, curiosity is one of my values. I think I enjoy being curious and learning stuff that kind of come through that curiosity. Uh, do I specifically want to learn something? I tell you what, I've learned a fair bit over the last three to five months around prep and grade four with homeschooling yeah, um, and learn how to kind of be a bit of a teacher in what they're doing. So uh, maybe when they get back to school, I might continue a little bit of the learning through them. Um, <laughs> so nothing nothing dedicated at this stage, but uh, you might inspire me to, to consider something more structured. Mm, no, great. Um, and is there one person or quote that's inspired you that through this, if you look back at this journey of yours of life, that's kind of stuck with you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, one one that Dad kind of had was, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Um, the the sales one was very much around identifying and satisfying people's needs. Um, that was kind of one for me. Um, yeah, the, the, I can't say I've got one hanging up on my wall, um, mm. but... It's kind of a combination of experiences, I guess, is is what is what kind of drives me forward. So, um, but they're yeah, they're, they're probably they're probably a couple of things that come to mind, um, kind of straight off straight off the bat. But yep. I, I've never really struggled for kind of um, motivation or inspiration. I, I think that that I don't know how much that has to do with my kind of childhood and, and never really quite settling in and and always feeling like I need to kind of still prove myself. But, um, the internal motivation uh, to keep going or, or inspiration has always kind of been there. Um, and last one, is there one thing you try and do, whether it's every day or every week, to get the best out of yourself from a mental and physical point of view? Yeah, I think um, I think exercise or some type of release away from um, the passion of the sport uh, and the, the work stuff is something I try to do. The last six months with COVID, um, has got me thinking about what is important, and and I think as we get back into the new norm or whatever people kind of talk about, I think that continued connection and making time for the kids um, will be a recalibration for me, um, and uh, I think that that has got has given me a lot of enjoyment. Um, since I've been kind of working from home in my son's bedroom upstairs, um, not you know being able to walk downstairs and, and see them and, and get that hour and a half back in your day that you used to spend commuting or all those days where you would travel interstate. I mean, I've been travelling interstate or internationally um, since before the kids were born. Um, and I think one of, one of the things I'll kind of do outside of work will make sure I I create those meaningful connections with them, nine and six now. Um, these are quite kind of formative years, I think. So so I think I'll invest 
um, invest a little bit more time in in them outside of work as well, as well as you know, mm. the exercise. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode, Matt, the finish line. Um, thank you again for coming on. I know you're a busy person, so I appreciate you making the time and you've shared some really fascinating insights into your journey. So I'm sure listeners are excited to take something away from it. So thank you. Thank you, Matt. You don't often get the chance to kind of reflect on on stuff that you've done and uh, and some of my questions probably indicate or my answers indicate that I haven't spent a whole lot of time reflecting. But uh I have, I have enjoyed it and I'll probably have a few more reflections after this, but um, thanks for the chance to have a chat. There you have it, Matt Dwyer. I hope you took away some actual insights and learnings from this conversation to apply to your lives and be 1% better every day. And I look forward to sharing the next episode with you next Tuesday. Stay tuned.